Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 7th, 2014, and my guest is Vernon Smith of Chapman University. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002. Vernon, welcome back to Econ Talk. Well, thanks, Russ. It's a great pleasure to be here. Our topic for today is human motivation and behavior as seen through the eyes of Adam Smith, particularly his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and the implications for modern economics, uh, particularly the theory of the consumer, and more generally how economists should uh, think about human behavior. And I want to start with the, with the so-called modern view, the view that I was taught as a graduate student, and I think uh, you were taught as well what Deirdre McCluskey calls Max U. So describe that for us. What's the Max U approach? Well, uh, what did remains by Max U is that following essentially Jevons, William Stanley Jevons and the other marginal revolutionists, marginal value revolutionists of the 1870s, uh, we reduce all problems to asking among the options that the individual face, faces, what, how can he or she maximize her utility or pay off her, her reward and, and minimize cost, okay, if, if, it's, if it's a loss uh, situation. And so, uh, and, and let me say that that, model works well in markets of the supply ordinary supply and demand markets which are the kind of thing it has to do with flows and and those are those really are having to do with perishable commodities it's like I, I like to use the example as hamburgers and haircuts uh, they cannot be retraded Ordinary supply and demand. You go in there, and you're either a buyer or a seller, and you know that in advance. And and uh, uh, and, and also, though, that's a world with perfectly enforced uh, property rights. If I buy, you deliver what uh, exactly what it was that I bought. And I and if you sell. I deliver you the payment for that with, without error. You see, that's a, a property rights world, and that that's a world where where you're less dependent upon trust and trustworthiness because it's supported by a property right and contract law uh, situation. Uh, now, and so it works well there, but when you come to two-person interaction. Uh, it turns out that that doesn't work well at all, and uh, and and, and I, I think that's what, the thing we will probably mostly focus on. I, I will say though that I, in my career, I've gone through. I've been involved in three kind of uh, uh, principle areas of experiment. And each of them have the characteristic that the data falsified my beliefs. They were <laughs> You're all very fail- lucky. You're very they were lucky. They were all failures. Yeah. Listen, they were, they were all failures. And, and, and it's important to refer them. You know, experiments that fail are very important because you, you have, to have to ask why are, were our expectations so far off? Well, that was true of the supply and demand experiments because when I did those, uh, I didn't really think they would work. I accepted the view that, you know, you had to have uh, complete information or everyone had to be a, a, a small relative of the entire market. You had to have a sea of buyers and sellers, that this was some kind of an ideal 
uh, frictionless ideal that was not likely to be approached in practice. And so here I was doing experiments with uh, with 15, 20, 25 people, and, and we were getting convergence easily. And, and I did them with smaller numbers, and, and those supply and demand markets worked really well. So that was a surprise, and I know it was a surprise to other economists because I had trouble publishing the paper. <laughs> Didn't believe it. Yeah. See, so, so but, but just look how it, that, I, I just did more and more experiments, and I realized these were not accidents. This is the way the world works. And people in that simple environment where at every trade, the, the buyer enjoys whatever the value of, of, from that trade is, and the seller similar gets their surplus. There's no retrading. It's all over. Okay. Uh, that's a market of basically for perishables, and it's not small. We're talking about, in my book with Steve Gerstedt, Rethinking Housing Bubbles. We, we discussed this stuff in some detail. But non-durable consumer goods, and of course a lot of those are also services, that's 75% of private product. If you take GDP and subtract government uh, uh, consumption expenditures, you, you get private products. 75% of that is stuff that basically cannot be retraded. And of course, those those not only behave those kind of goods not only behave really well in the lab, they behave, behave themselves in the economy. They hold up. Those kind of expenditures expenditures just do fine. They're not a problem. All of our macroeconomic instability comes from the other twenty five percent, mostly housing. Okay. But the point I want to emphasize that I that you mentioned earlier that I think is all you're talking about the perishable part, but the other part is the market part. So when I go get a haircut, uh, I I see the person cutting my hair. I the place I go, she's uh, she works in a shop, and the owner I see him every day. He also cuts hair there, and uh, I don't see him every day, but when I go in, anytime I'm in there, he's in there. So I see them face to face. But that transaction is taking place in a much broader context because there's lots of places I can get a haircut. And if their price starts to vary dramatically from what I perceive as the market price, probably going to stop going there. Um, and a lot of that 75 percent that you're talking about, uh, those are transactions that take place with relative strangers, correct? In the sense that uh, a better way to say it is. I'm pretty self-interested. I'm looking for a good deal. I'm trying to, as you say, maximize my my surplus, which whichever side of the market I'm on, and that's the Max U model. Yes, very good e example. And also notice that you're never a seller in the haircut market. Correct. You're always a buyer, and the person who cuts your hair is commonly I don't know who cuts her hair, but or his hair, but. Uh, She's a seller. You see, we're specialized in the roles, and that's see, that's very different than in the stock market or even the housing market, where depending upon the price, you may switch from a, being a buyer to a seller, and that accounts for a lot of the problems. What we observe is a lot of instability and 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 erratic behavior of of, of prices, and I think that that's an insight that I that I think is very important because we don't usually think very much about the nature of the commodity and how that might account for uh, the, the good things in the economy as well as the sometimes ugly things uh, uh, that happen. Um, anyway, this is a little bit of a distraction, but I kind of wanted to give you uh, uh, the background. And then, well, and then, of course, we started... See, I started studying supply and demand markets. That was in the late 50s or, and 60s. We then turned to asset markets in the 1980s, and we started with a very transparent market, uh, an, an asset that could be retraded, but the, there was a yield, a dividend on them that it was common information, and we thought that would be very simple 
it would be transparent and people would trade at fundamental value. Well, wrong again. Okay, I was wrong the first time, wrong again 25 years later. These markets are very subject to, to bubbles in the lab. And people get caught up in, uh, in self-reinforcing expectations of rising prices. We don't know where that comes from. It's incredible, but they do. It goes away with experience in the lab. And, and you see, I now then uh, draw, can, can see very much the connections between that work that started in the 80s and the Great Recession, where we had this massive uh, housing bubble that's caused all of the, of the pain. Uh, well, then you asked about trust gains. Okay. So now, starting in the late 80s, early 90s, we started to study two-person uh, uh, sequential move game. Yeah, explain, explain how the trust game works. Okay. Well, uh, you, you and I are matched, and there's uh, 12 people total in the room, say, and they're sitting. They've been, you, you've all been uh, uh, escorted to a terminal, and we read the instructions. So here's the way the trust game works. And let me give you a, an example that we studied early on uh, that we started with. Uh, uh, I move first, and, and, and you and I both see that I can uh, stop the game by giving each of us $10, okay? And, and that's, that's the end. Uh, or I can pass to you. If I pass to you, the $20 is doubled, Okay, it becomes $40. Now, we don't tell a story about that, but the, the idea is there's some sort of synergy in our interactions, okay? Um, <clears throat> so the $20 becomes 40 Now, you can choose to give me 15 and take 25 of the 40 or you can just take all the money, <clears throat> and I get nothing and you get 40 Now, we deliberately chose rather extreme payoffs because you and I, we don't know each other. We're anonymously matched in a room with, a, say, a total of 12 people, and I'll never know who you are. You'll never know who I am. And so we were giving this Max U its best shot. And Max U says, <clears throat> uh, well, that I shouldn't, if I move first, I shouldn't move to you because $40 is better than 25 and you'll take all the money. So I should, so the equilibrium of that game is for me to just stop it and we'll each get $10. And, and so we, we really thought that zero, the fact you could take it all would, would, would really give us a very strong tendency toward that max U. Well, we were dead wrong. Half, half of the subjects moved down on in that game. In other words, half of the of the people in the first mover position uh, passed to the other person, and two thirds to three quarters of those assign fifteen dollars to the first mover and take twenty five dollars. In other words, they do not. A defect and take all the money, uh, so predominantly. So that was a that that was a really dramatic thing to us, and you know, <clears throat> uh, a number of experiments followed to try to to explain why, and we we varied the payoffs, you know. Turns out during the payoffs made some difference, but not all that much. Uh, <clears throat> we're doing some games more recently where the opt-out payoff is 12-12 rather than 10-10. And so the $24 becomes 48 
and then the second mover can choose between 18 for the first person and 30 for herself or six for the first person and 42 for herself. So we took the zero out. Well, that it's still you get about half moving down, a little bit more than half in that case, but not much more. But you'll get a very, very predominant move. There we have two-thirds of those uh, uh, cooperating. Well, <clears throat> there were a number of uh, responses to this. Uh, one of the first things, we tried to explain it with the idea that, well, this, this is really an exchange, okay? And uh, people see it as an exchange, and for me to move to you and for you to choose the cooperative outcome it, it is, <clears throat> is it's, it's reciprocity, okay? Now, I no longer see that as a good explanation. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's not Adam Smith's explanation, and he's right. He's got a deeper explanation. <clears throat> Think about it. Reciprocity, what is that? That's just a name for what it is they're doing. Yeah. It doesn't really explain anything. It's like in Keynesian economics, a liquidity trap. What's a liquidity trap? Well, it's a name for the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. See, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't... And, and certain curves that people, where they teach this stuff, bend in a certain way. That's what it is. But there isn't this kind of, any kind of deeper uh, uh, push into why people are doing that. And that's the beauty of, of uh, Adam Smith. And, and, and let me just, uh, since I really am uh, very, you know, I really want to get Adam Smith in here. Uh, let me point out that what Adam Smith does that is uh, he has some very strong propositions that turn out to apply directly to these kind of games. For example, he has a pro proposition, and I've kind of basically know these by art almost. He says that actions of a beneficent tendency which proceed from proper motives, that qualification is very important, seem alone to require reward. Well, think about the trust game. You see, if I um, move first and pass to you, I'm, I'm benefiting you, Russ. I'm giving you a chance to do better than you would have done if I simply opted out of the game. It's a, it's a gift. Yes. And moreover, why can we infer that the motives are proper? Well, because you can see what I could have done if I hadn't passed to you. You see, you can see that I could have chose 12-12 or 10-10 in the original uh, version of the game that I told you about. I could have done that, but I didn't. The fact that I didn't do it conveys meaning. See, that's the point in Adam Smith, that context and circumstances are very important. And these actions, people, when they take actions, others are able to read those actions and make, and make inferences. And, and, and so these games need to be looked upon as kind of a... a there are the, the actions taken are signals that enable people to read read intentions and adam smith emphasizes over and over in the theory of moral sentiments that uh intentions are central to understanding the meaning of actions well <laughs> you see that's not, Russ, that isn't our, it wasn't in our original conception of these games coming from Max U. You see, if I believe you're self-interested, you believe I'm self-interested, if that's common knowledge, then what, what's intentions got to do with it? Right. Nothing. Or if I'm just a maximizer, right? Yeah. If my goal is just to get the most out of uh, any deal. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it reminds me of the of Milton Friedman's expression statement that we spend our own money on ourselves more carefully than we spend, say, other people's money on other people. That 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 falls into Max Hu. But what doesn't fall into Max Hu is that you might spend your own money that you've earned more carefully than if somebody gives you some money. And that that isn't in Max Hu at all. It can't be in there by almost by definition. And yet we often feel very differently about the money that we receive that we've worked for versus the money that might be a present or something else. And it's just very – context matters. Yes. And by the way, there's been now a lot more experiments in which the subjects don't get a freebie from the experimenter, an endowment, which is the, the game that I just gave you. Uh, but there's been more interest in situations where people have to earn the money and then what they do with it is uh, is is their own. They're fr- they're free to earn their money and leave. Now, generally, people don't. They stay, of course, and do the experiment after they've earned the money. But uh, and and that's very. I don't I don't want to get off into that too much. But then that that is something that can that can be a game changer. So it's very important to uh, to, to explore that. My, in fact, I've written a paper which I argue that all of those experiments that we did earlier using experimental experimenter money endowments need to be replicated. Mm-hmm. You see, and and see how robust they are with regard to exactly this point that you're making, Ross, and, and, that, and that has been happening. You know, a related point which drives, <clears throat> which I think is so important is that the another implication of the Max U model is that if if I earn $50,000 a year, I'm just as happy as if someone gives me $50,000 a year. And uh, I think that's not true. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. There's a, there's a satisfaction associated with that that, uh, that is, is easy to, to uh, overlook. There's a pride in that. Yep. And uh, – <clears throat> And you, we, we look more favorably upon ourselves when we do things that are that are proper, okay. Yeah. And earning the money is a proper way to do it. I gave value and I received value. And even though people don't, they have a lot of trouble with that. And always in understanding markets, the average person on the street, they get that. Yes, they because, do. They get that because it's part of our emotional makeup. Our our, our our sentiments. And, you know, the theory of moral sentiments is all about uh, fellow feeling. Uh, it's interesting, you see, this is before the word empathy was in the language. Uh, Adam Smith is talking about empathy, but it would be 150 years after he wrote before that word would enter the English language. It turns out it entered the English language early, very early in the 20th century. Mm. And, and, and it, in, in some ways, I, I appreciate that because he always spells it out. Uh, mm-hmm. He talks about the pleasures of fellow feeling, you see. And, uh, and so he makes it, and when he uses these great... Uh, metaphors uh, in which he, uh, and I love it. In fact, I think you quote, you may quote this one in your book in which Adam Smith, well, I call it his great mental experiment. He says, imagine a person, a member of the species being brought up entirely uh, isolated, never sees another human being. He says that person can no more uh, understand what it means for his mind to be deformed than for his face to be deformed. And Smith says, I'm paraphrasing, bring him into society and you give him the mirror he needed before. In other words, the looking glass in which we are able to see ourselves as others And, you know, it's an incredible work. Smith's uh, book is an incredible work of psychology and particularly 
It is social psychology because there is no self unless there is a we. You see what I mean? Yeah. That is, it, 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 see, what does it mean for, for your face to be deformed if you are entirely an isolated individual? You see, no way to know. Uh, we all get that from uh, by being brought up in the presence of others, so that humans are very much social animals, and, and uh, our psychology is very much a a, a social uh, phenomenon. <clears throat> well, but, uh, Vernon, Vernon, yes. you 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 argue. Uh, I'm going to put two things together and try to and ask you to time together from from a recent paper you wrote. You wrote uh, you wrote that motivation, human motivation, is not utilitarian. And you also wrote that that the theory of moral sentiments is is all about rules. Explain what what you mean by those two statements because I think they go together. Uh, yes. Uh, well, Smith doesn't. He assumes that we're all self-loving, that in terms of the modern uh, preference theory, uh, we're non-satiated in the sense more is better, less is worse. That's, that's his – I call it his stoic axiom of self-love, and he talks about that more than one place. But that is not – the way people make decisions. And I now realize that the reason why he needs kind of common knowledge that we're all self-loving is to be able to know when an action is of benefit to someone or it's hurtful. See, so in the trust game, uh, if I pass to you, uh, I enable you to be benefited. I can, you can make a choice that also benefits me, but you, this definitely improves your situation no matter what you see, what, what you do. Well, we, uh, we can immediately see that. Both of us understand that. We don't even have to ask a question about that because we automatically know that. Well, that's why. That's the reason why you need this self-love. But, but our decisions are all based upon uh, issues about whether the choice, uh, Smith says, we desire praise and to be praiseworthy. We desire to avoid blame and blameworthiness. So in other words, it's the social criteria that governs and drives our choice in Adam Smith. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't possible to introduce some kind of a utility function, of course, but the point is you don't need it. You can tell a really good story about the dynamics of interaction as Smith does, and, 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 it, and he describes the process, what it is people feel, you see. So... If player two in the trust game uh, responds with a cooperative outcome, Smith, Smith, Smith predicts that lots of people will do that because of the gratitude they feel. The first mover didn't have to do what he or she did. And in fact, for different motivations back in the oh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, we did some comparison experiments. We did a trust game where one had no outside option. It just had to move to two. Okay, and then two had the same uh, uh, choice outcomes as in a game where one did have an outside option. Well, if, if two doesn't see what one gave up because they gave up nothing, they had to do what they did, then there is far more defection. It's now, whereas in the game where I see what you 
gave up and I can read meaning into your action, the cooperation is twice as high as the defection. If the player two can't see that, then the defection is twice as high as the cooperative outcome. It completely changes, you see, the, the, tips the balance. And, well, Smith would say, if he were, he would say, what else is new? That's because, <laughs> you see, that's, that's because you can't read the meaning. You can't read intentions, and intentions are everything. Well, he's just so right. So what do you, what do you mean by, by the rules part? In what sense oh. is, explain that. Well, I think uh, the rules come from, uh, for example, one sort of rule comes from this first proposition uh, where actions of a beneficent tendency to proceed from proper motives alone require reward. Well, the, the rule that people generally follow is to reciprocate kindness. Okay? So that's uh, that's a, a kind of rule that <clears throat> that you get from Adam Smith. And also, he has another proposition, which is the reverse of the beneficent, and this has to do with hurtful actions. He says, actions of a hurtful tendency which proceed from improper motives seem alone to deserve punishment. In other words, what does it mean for it to be improper? Well, you intended to be hurtful. See, if it was just an accident, uh, Smith says, well, that, you know, if it's just an accident, that's different. But if it's intended, uh, then this is hurtful, and people feel resentment to that, just as they feel gratitude toward actions that <clears throat> intended uh, to be ben uh, beneficent, so they feel uh, resentment when you deliberately make a choice, make take an action that is hurtful to me, and that <clears throat> that excites resentment. Uh, Smith tells us, and I am motivated to. If I have an opportunity, I will punish you for that. And that, by the way, that that proposition is the basis of property rights in the theory of moral sentiments. Theory of moral sentiments develops beautifully a theory of property rights, and it comes from that second proposition. And, and it's because we have these rules in our small group to respond in a resentful way toward deliberately, deliberately hurtful actions, he said, when it comes time for civil government, we just move those rules over into the, and they become the law. You see, he, the law originates uh, long before, in, in, these, in cultural groups, long before we have the civil order of uh, government. And he, and he develops that. Uh, 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 very, very nicely. He said it, it's kind of a, uh, it, it's not only a, a motivation to, to punish from resentment, but it's sort of a proportional punishment. That's, uh, you see, depending upon the severity of the resentment. And he says this is why, and under the civil order of government, that, uh, Murder is it, it has the greatest punishment because what you know what could be more serious than uh, uh, and than than murder and and he also though points out that uh, uh, in in that development that. Theft and robbery carry a greater punishment than a violation of promises. In other words, contracts. And he, he says, why? He says, because uh, robbery and theft take from us what we have already acquired. Violation of contract 
merely uh, frustrates our expectation of gain. Okay, but and he says that's different. And indeed, <laughs> uh, theft and robbery are criminal offenses. Violation of contract are only civil offenses. You can get redress, of course, but they're considered less serious. And he gets that from another fundamental proposition in Adam Smith, and that's the asymmetry between gains and losses. It's incredible. He says we suffer, and I can tell you this one almost verbatim. He says we suffer more when we fall from a better to a worse state than we ever gain when we rise from a worse to a better. And he goes on and explains this, that, that it, it's, it's loss of fortune, of reputation, of, uh, <clears throat> of esteem. Of, I mean, it isn't just money and fortune. He mentions, uh, uh, as I recall, three other things. But they have to do with our with our our rank, our status. Yeah, people don't pay as much attention to us, and, and that's a huge factor for Smith. Yes, and we will be very careful to avoid that. And so, this notion of the asymmetry between gains and losses is very is not only clearly stated more than one place in Adam Smith, but it's actually used uh, to derive some of his uh, results. And my my good. Friend Danny Kahneman, co-winner of the 2002 award, Nobel Prize award, you see, he was recognized well for a number of different things, but probably the the best known work of Kahneman Tversky was the documentation of this asymmetry between gains and losses, and that was mostly an in individual decision making, but but they generalized it further than that. And, and and I say good thing. So did Adam Smith. Then yeah. <laughs> they came to that too. Vernon, let me try to step back a second and, and take this um, set of observations. I want to expand it beyond uh, the exchange setting. So you take your the desert island metaphor, right? We don't grow up on a desert island. We grow up in this social soup <laughs> that we're constantly getting signals and giving signals, sending signals, receiving signals, and learning about the norms of propriety, what's expected of us, what's proper. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying that as we learn those norms, we do our best. If we if we had to say what's our model of behavior, it's not that we try to do what's best for ourselves, though that self-love, of course, is always operating. It's that we're constantly striving to meet the expectations of those around us to comply with these non-legal, extra-legal norms and rules and expectations of those around us. Because when we do, uh, things go well. People are then free to make their choices, pursue their, their desires without bumping up against other people in, in destructive ways. And this goes way beyond haircuts and hamburgers because it's really – and haircuts and hamburgers might be 75% of the economy. But these daily interactions we have with others are a huge portion of how we spend our time. And that model, which is – I don't even want to use – I hesitate to use the word model. That perspective – on human behavior is so much richer than just our our commercial dealings. React to that summary. Yes, it, uh, it's a great summary. And you see, uh, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiment is about human betterment, social betterment, human betterment in the social sense and all the ways in which we interact and make life meaningful for each other by uh, following these unwritten rules. He talks about them being we, we do things insensibly. That is, a lot of what we do is just kind of built in. Sure. He, he's trying to think through the meaning behind them, of course. And, and we may not even think about these, but we just 
you know, t- take the phrase common in our language. I owe you one. You see, that is a recognition that you did something for me. And you know what? Uh, uh, I, I, I'm going to remember that. And, it, and it's just one of those automatic phrases. Where did that come from? You see, if it didn't come from the notion that we are constantly exchanging uh, things at the personal level, which increases our happiness and uh, and our and and we have better lives as a result. And this, I think, is entirely. Uh, distinct from human economic betterment. See, he wrote two books. (laughs) The second one is about economic betterment. The first one is about social betterment betterment in this this, uh, important sense. And even even in Theory of Moral Sentiments, he has, there's many points where he, he makes it clear Partly the asymmetry between gains and losses. You know, the average person that has done reasonably well, <clears throat> you see, what can he do to better his life? <laughs> Very little. He's, he's kind of there. And that's the reason why, you know, more uh, adds something. The thing that is really devastating is to have a big loss. And that's partly why he emphasizes prudence, I think, yeah, uh, as, as one of his, I, I call it the big three, prudence, justice, and beneficence. But prudence, you think of as, if you're not careful, you can think of prudence as being just, uh, oh, just not, you know, leading a narrow life. Don't take too many chances. But what he's really reminding us, and, and this reminds me of a little bit of Nassim Taleb, he's saying, and of course, Taleb has a stoic side to him, which is, the worst thing that can happen is to, is to lose is is to lose a dramatic portion of of where you are now. That can be devastating, and so you want to put yourself in a position, both emotionally and financially, where either that's less likely to happen. If it does, you know how to cope with it. Yes, and he also says that that you're looked down on if you're not properly prudent. Yeah. by others because you do have an obligation to take care of yourself, not at the expense of the others. You should always humble the self-interest and bring it down to what other people will go along with, which is kind of a literal quotation of what he says. But that doesn't mean that you aren't responsible for yourself and people will look down on you if you're behaving in ways that are not, not doesn't give you good survival value. And, of course, that's one reason why, of course, we don't like it when uh, people use drugs. We see that as diminishing their lives, and we're trying to stop it, <laughs> you know, in ways that are, that are, that, that are just don't work very well, as, as you've written about and, and, and many of us believe. Uh, but in but part, that's but where your it's point, coming from. Yeah, your point explains why it is that people persist in an in an in an urge to say fight the drug war, even when there's zero evidence that it's helping people's lives, they can't exactly. Just <laughs> yes, and it and and it and it gives it adds to violence and to law breaking, all of these things. And of course, we went through that uh, during prohibition, and and remarkably, as I look back on it, it's amazing we actually repealed. Prohibition. Yeah, it's shocking, really. Now that that tells you, Russ, that it was failing miserably. <laughs> it must have really been bad. It was failing miserably to, for anyone to get that kind of effort up uh, to to change, go back and change the Constitution. When does when do we ever t- once uh, make legislative <laughs> mistakes and then go back and correct them? It's pretty rare. It's, me- it's kind of rare, and 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 it's just and, and you know people. On this drug business, uh, it's just become something that is so hard to get rid of, the, 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 all the violence and everything that has been uh, created around it. But, it, but it's, you're right. Smith explains, you see, 
kind of why these kind of things can get started. Uh, I, Ron, I want to take us in a different direction. I want, I want to tell you a, a little story and, and get your uh, take on it. I I saw years ago, maybe this is maybe 15 or so years ago, there was a, a symposium in honor of Gary Becker. And I, I've told this story before, I think, uh, here, but uh, I, I want to share with you and, and follow up on it. So at the end of it, people made a lot of presentations. And at the end, Gary stood up and people asked him some questions. One of the questions they asked him was, who are your biggest influences? And he said, uh, Adam Smith and Alfred Marshall. And I was kind of shocked by that. I was a student at Gary's and uh, I would never have predicted those answers. And over the years, and I'm, I'm sad, he's, you know, he passed away recently and I've been thinking about his work recently because of that. In many ways, his enterprise, much of his research agenda was an attempt to take Smith's insights to enrich the, the more sterile view of utility maximization and the theory of the consumer. He put altruism into the, or the, the happiness of others or the consumption of others into one's own utility function. He was interested in all kinds of social phenomena that most economists had ignored. And you mentioned earlier that you, you sort of said it, it was a remark you made in passing. You said, well, of course, you could put such and such into the utility function. What what do you think of, of that? To me, there's something quixotic about it. Uh, I've come to believe that it's not really – and I did this myself, by the way. My, my earliest work was, was very much in that vein. But I've come to believe now that it's um, – these two approaches are almost orthogonal, the utility maximization and the Smithian approach, because as you point out, motivation is not utilitarian, and yet mainstream economics views people as maximizers, as people who are trying to, to get stuff. And of course, in many parts of our life, we do. But in so many other parts of our life, that's not what the enterprise is about, and to twist in, in a convoluted way the traditional model – to take account of this in a way, it just seems um, seems like the wrong approach. What do you think, Russ? I agree. It all goes back. You know, we inherited this kind of stuff from the neoclassicals. Uh, Jeremy Bentham, yes, he basically. <laughs> I think of as the, as the guy who started off. He he overlapped. Adam Smith, but of course he's mostly a 19th century thinker, and it was the greatest good for the greatest number. He believed that even institutions that have come to through us tradition, through tradition, they need to be analyzed from the perspective of 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 this utility uh, calculus, and uh, if they're not creating a utilitarian welfare, then we should change them. <laughs> That's maybe a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's, it's kind of was the message in, in uh, Jeremy Bentham. And that was picked up by Jevons, you see. And, and Jevons and, and the other uh, uh, contributors to the marginal revolution made an important advance. And, and, and it was all connected with this notion of marginal utility and, and its relationship to marginal values determining price. That wasn't clear and crystal clear at all with the classical e economists. But, but I've come to see, though, that, you see, that, didn't, that wasn't just added to what the classical economists like Smith did, it's, it, it displaced them. Yeah. And you see, it and it turned Adam Smith's theory, uh, it turns Adam Smith's wealth of nations on its head. What it did was establish this idea that out there, there are preferences and there's technology and there's resources and what an economy does is a competitive economy is, is is to find prices that allow people to 
uh, to satisfy their preferences and get stuff done at lowest cost, and uh, and 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 we and we get specialization out of that. And Adam Smith is just the other way around. You see, it just and Hike, of course, and his critique of the neoclassical model emphasizes has emphasized this, but it's in Adam Smith. In Adam Smith, what what is the in the wealth of nations, what is the first axiom? It's the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange. He said that's what drives everything. He says, I can't explain that, <laughs> really. He speculates about why that it is, why that is, we're the only species that does that. He mainly wants to get uh, that propensity to trade. And, re- and notice that just comes out of our sociality. David Hume distinguished between interested and disinterested commerce. Disinterested commerce is like in the theory of oral sentiments. Interested commerce is like in the wealth of nations. Okay, it's driven by economics and and uh, and more uh, the uh, self-seeking stuff. But 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 to go Adam Adam Smith, what happens? It's a ten- tendency to trade. What does that do? It leads to prices. Prices then become known, if not if they're not public, people learn about them through gossip. I mean, you know, it's, it, people talk about stuff. So if if, uh, if you've made a deal and a trade, you talk about it with your friends. And as soon as there's prices, people can start to make comparisons. You see, an age calculation. Now you say, oh, with the price of corn out there, and there's a price of hogs. I wonder if I should be producing more hogs and less corn, or the reverse. People start to, to, to ask questions they didn't ask before. Theoretically, they could have done it before, but they didn't. And I think that's very important, because if you, if you, if you read what Smith says about specialization, he says it, it, it's not something that exists out there already, and then as a result of prices, it comes forward. No, he says it's because of markets and everything, and in our maturation, we we make decisions that differentiate the philosopher from the common street porter, okay, even though they started out and they were playfellows together originally. So it's a process that transforms People, the existence of markets, the fact that you don't have to satisfy all of your needs on your own. You see, that creates opportunities for the individual that leads to specialization. Well, you see that in the modern neoclassical view, and and we just continued that. I I think that has been lost. And it's, uh, well, it's... it, it's high time, you see, that that we recognize that. And I think your story about reducing everything to utility maximization, I think, distracts from that. And 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 why why are they doing it? Why do people do that? And I, and I'm like you, I did it too. It was a long struggle of escape from it, but uh, I did it because you want to be able to make a an efficiency statement. You want to be able to if, well, certain is, is this outcome efficient or is it not? And I think Adam Smith would say, hey, there's time enough for that. Let's first find out, understand on the ground why people do this. What is their immediate motivation? What are their emotions? You see, and I think that's, he's absolutely right. Do you think a, do you think a modern graduate student should read the theory of moral sentiments? By all means, and stay with it until he understands that I didn't understand it the first time. <laughs> It, it's and another thing. My colleague Bart Wilson. See, we've we've been using it in teaching. We just teach jointly classes and have been since we were at uh, uh, GMU. So it has uh, it's kind of transformed our thinking. And 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 Bart uh, got me into uh, using. Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language. This is the first dictionary of the English language. It was published 
1755, four years before the theory of moral sentiments. And it, and the neat thing about it is you find the words and how people use them in that day. See, behavior had a different meaning then. It was not, and, and you'll notice when, when, uh, and, and Adam Smith used the word behavior in the theory of moral sentiments, but it's not alone. It's always about conduct and behavior, countenance and behavior. He, he, his, his real word, the word that counts, is conduct, you see. And conduct has to do is a thing that involves uh, rule following. How do we conduct ourselves? And that involves not just the outcome of, of our actions, but the circumstances that are behind our actions. And, and so it's, uh, uh, and, and I think it's, it, it's exactly the right sort of emphasis. And, and you know, let me tell a story about, <laughs> uh, Candace and I, this was some years ago. That's your wife. Yes. My wife, Candace, and I were flew into uh, Seoul, South Korea. And we were picked up and delivered to a, a hotel, nice hotel. And we were just the, uh, it was really very good service. Uh, uh, two people took our bags and everything up to the room. And they were so polite and everything. Well, I offered a gratuity to each of these two individuals, and they very graciously declined. And they made it quite clear in their gracious declination of that offer that I was a valued guest and, and, and they were doing their job. This was what they were there to do. And uh, any additional gratuity was not required and not expected. And now, and now you see that, see, this tells you about the rules, how, how they can be very cultural and, and uh, local. And if you think about that, each of us knew that the other preferred more money to less, right? No doubt. No, no, no doubt. There, there wasn't any question in, in their mind or my mind that money was good to them, and they were, and they always preferred more to less. That is, other things equal. But there, that wasn't equal. And of course, here I was aware of that, willing to give up some of of that money in order to recognize and reward. You see, uh, this as I. Thought, uh, uh, beneficent act that they wouldn't have had to have done. <laughs> okay, but they're coming back and saying, "Oh no, uh, we, 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 uh, there, there's no way we would ever do anything except treat you this." So you see how rich that environment was, and I was following the rules in my environment back in the United States, where you reward. Uh, uh, actions you see of a beneficent character uh, above and beyond the call of duty, and you reward that. Okay, these people were telling me it wasn't above and beyond their call of duty. So I just found that so interesting. Well, they didn't. They didn't want your charity, and on the surface, right? They saw it as charity. You saw it as a payment. And on the sur what I love about the story is that on the surface, both parties were irrational. You were irrational for offering the tip in a place you'd probably never go again, right? There's no reason yeah, to think you're yeah. going to get these particular, even if you go back to that hotel in the future, you're not going to get these people to carry yeah. your bags in. So you were giving money that you didn't need to give, and they refused it, money that, that would have made them, quote, better off. But they wouldn't have been better off. They wouldn't have, it wasn't, uh, as you say, what, again, I, what's fascinating to me is that I want to impose my utility uh, framework on this about better off, but it's really not about that. It's what you said. It's about conduct. Mm -hmm. It's about propriety. It's about, well, this just isn't done, sir. You know, we've, we've done our duty and we don't want your money. And yes. 
Uh, it, that's just it's a it's a it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating little example. I want to I want to close with um, I want to defend economics mainstream economics for a minute because uh, you know we both you and I both have the luxury of um, uh, of not being quite a part of it being part of of that mainstream. I'm I'm a a podcasting rap video making unusual bizarre. I'm not a normal academic. And you've won a Nobel Prize, slightly, uh, a slightly uh, different reason for being outside the mainstream in the sense that you can do whatever you want. You don't have to be, you don't have to play by the rules anymore of, of the economics profession. But if you look at our profession, you know, you say, and I love you're going back to Jevons, you, you know, for the last 140 or so years, we've created this magnificent mathematical uh, edifice uh, that, that leads to these grand sweeping summaries about efficiency, as you said. And then we can look at what leads to breakdowns in efficiency and asymmetric information, imperfect information, uh, imperfect competition, et cetera, et cetera. And much of the last 40 years have been an attempt to mathematicize these imperfections with the concomitant uh, implications for, for public policy and, and advice that economists like to give. And that's the standard view. Now, you and I come along uh, you more than 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 me, but you and I come along and say, you know, this is kind of a sterile uh, view of human beings. It doesn't capture a lot of what's of what's important, and in fact, I would suggest it leads to a a false confidence in our ability to make people better off by manipulating the levers of public policy. But I think the response would be, and so I'm going to play uh, devil's advocate here, and then I'll let you close this out. The response would be, well. well all this stuff that you're talking about with Adam Smith, that, that's fine for how we behave in a, in maybe in a, a small, relatively unimportant transaction in a hotel in South Korea. Maybe it's relevant for how I deal with the tragedy in my life because Smith has marvelous things to say about tragedy and success. So that's fine. That, that's sociology. That's not really in psychology. That's not really economics. So economics, it, it's it's more rigorous, and it should just ignore all this other stuff you're talking about and stick with this this beautiful edifice we've created that's more scientific, it's more mathematical, and it deals with the stuff that economics deals with, buying and selling, prices, markets, and so on. Respond to that. Well, Russ, uh, the way I would respond to it is there's a time and place for everything, and there's still a time and place for the mathematical framework and for a lot of that kind of traditional stuff. And let me give you an example. When my colleague Steve Rosanti and I uh, started studying the electric power industry and designing experiments to see if about uh, to explore the possibilities organizing that industry around markets rather than centralized control, we needed all of that framework. We needed auction theory. We needed the stuff. We needed those tools that need that. And, and we were doing basically an engineering application of those tools. In fact, as you may know, I have an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. Hmm. Steve Rosani's PhD is in systems engineering. And we went when we went to Australia, when they asked us to come, it's because they had heard about the stuff that we had been doing and the experiments and what we were we were showing. And it was a coalition of buyers that took us to Australia. Uh, just, uh, it was um uh, let's see the it was the second largest distribution company. What was its name? Providence. Uh, it was the commercial buyers and the industrial buyers. <clears throat> they felt that the government owned electric power industry has was not giving them low energy costs. And particularly uh, one of the stories we heard was that they're trying. Uh, the industrial guys, we're trying to compete in world markets. And we have all these energy-intensive products. 
And so a low energy cost is important to us in being competitive. So that's why they were looking at the alternatives. And we faced everywhere people that did not believe. That was true of New Zealand, too, when I went there. They did not believe that you could make a market, a market on electric power and certainly not organize the industry around it. Well, we could put these people into experiments. It turns out they made a market just fine, <laughs> and we could show them the results. And then they, you know, and we'd ask them, well, tell us what's wrong with the experiment. Well, they would have a few things, but they never had anything because we were always willing to make it more relevant. I tell you what, and we, we won a series of battles and the war in Australia. The Australians <clears throat> created the National Grid Management Council. See, each state owned its own electric power industry there. The, the, the federal government there created the National Grid Management Council, and basically they were pushing, wanted to push the states into creating a wholesale market for power. And uh, and they started trading in some individual states in, let's see, that was, was 1996. In 1998, uh, they were all uh, 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 creating a market. Uh, for, it was a, for, a simple four-node network. It's not a, re, a very complicated uh, network. And that that whole thing started to change. You see, so there was a place for that, but it's not everything, Russ. I could tell that story, but I can't understand all the things that I'm trying to understand about the human enterprise with just that story and just that kind of a framework and that kind of modeling. And so there's a place for that modeling, but I need a much better, a broader view if I'm going to understand the, the human enterprise, and wow, there isn't a better model than Adam Smith because he was trying to do the same thing. My guest today has been Vernon Smith. Vernon, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Okay, Russ, thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.